Stephanie Kwolek has saved thousands and thousands of lives. Stephanie Kwolek is the daughter, was the daughter of two Polish immigrants, and she grew up and went into a career in chemistry. Specifically, she was a textile chemist working with different fabrics and fibers and polymers. She was a research associate there. In 1965, her company DuPont expected a gas shortage to come to the US, and so they began researching alternative fibers to use in car tires that would improve car tires and ultimately improve gas mileage to save gas with the coming gas shortage. So as Stephanie was working her job and researching new fibers and polymers, she was spinning various polyamides and she inadvertently discovered a new fiber. So as they began to test this fiber, they discovered that it was five times stronger than steel lighter than fiberglass and could withstand inordinately high temperatures. That fiber, most of us know as Kevlar. Now, if you don't know what Kevlar is, Kevlar has many, many, many uses in the world, but it is perhaps most popular for being the main material used in bulletproof vests and other body armor. <laughs> because of her discovery, thousands of police officers and soldiers have kept their lives. Pretty amazing. That was in 1965. Now fast forward, it took many years for it to get approved and then begin in, in production. Fast forward to 1990 and imagine that you're an American soldier that is being transferred to the Middle East in the middle of Operation Desert Storm. You are one of the minority of soldiers that is wearing a new Kevlar vest. Now suppose that you were that soldier and when it came time to go into battle, you forgot to put on your bulletproof vest. You just forgot. It wasn't that important. And to make matters worse, you really haven't been paying attention to the briefing sessions, so you barely know who you're fighting, much less how they fight or any of their tactics or what you should be looking out for. And worse comes to worse, when the battle actually starts and you engage the enemy, instead of listening to your commanding officer, instead of being careful about your positioning, you simply run out into the open where the enemy has the advantage. What would we say then? Well, the short answer is, you are dead. How foolish would it be for a soldier to go into battle with no protection, no defense, no armor, and no preparation of any kind? And yet, you and I do the same thing every day. We go into life knowing that the enemy is there, knowing that the enemy is trying to attack us, and we don't prepare, we don't put on our armor, and ultimately, it leads to the loss of our life if we're not careful. That'll be our theme this morning as we consider again in Proverbs, the theme of sexual sin. So we're going to say it this way. Let wisdom protect you from sexual temptation and sin. Your life depends on it. Let wisdom protect you from sexual temptation and sin. Your life depends on it. And you say, well, that, that feels a little drastic. How do I know that my life depends on this? Well, look, if you have your Bibles open at Proverbs 7, look at verse 2. Solomon writes to his sons, keep my commandments and what? And live. It's a command to his sons. You will live by keeping my commandments. Jump down to verse 23. 
the one who doesn't keep his commandments, the one who is foolish and naive, an arrow will pierce through his liver. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Look at verse 26 and 27. Many are the victims she has cast down. Numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Those who are not careful, who wrap themselves up in sin and temptation, ultimately it will cost them their life. And so we come to this section again, and and remember we talked a lot about this in Proverbs chapter 5, where Solomon gave warnings to his son against sexual temptation and sin. We saw some of it again in chapter 6. We see it again in chapter 7. Eric Lane, who's one of the commentators, writes this, Almost one-third of the first nine chapters of Proverbs is devoted to the subject of sex. Why? Solomon did not write about it because he secretly enjoyed doing so. Rather, he had one aim in view, which he repeatedly tells us, to save his sons from the adulteress, to keep them from the immoral woman. And the best way to do this was to teach and apply the word of God. What we're going to learn today is we have to let the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God's word, protect us when we are tempted toward sexual sin. And if we are not careful to do that and we run headlong into sin, ultimately it will cost us our life. So, this morning, we're going to see three disciplines, again, keeping that soldier theme, three disciplines to defend ourselves against sexual sin and temptation. The first one we see in the first five verses is we need to embrace the protection of wisdom. Embrace the protection of wisdom. So let's look at these first five verses. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 1 to 5. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live and my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. These first several verses, Solomon writes again to his sons and says, remember, you need wisdom. Wisdom will protect you. And actually, we see it both ways. One, he says, you must protect wisdom. Notice in verse one, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. The idea is that you are to guard wisdom. And he has several different pictures here. In verse one, he says, you should protect wisdom as a great treasure. My son, keep Keep my words, watch over, guard, uh, keep watch over my words and, and over my commandments within you. Treasure them. The idea of treasure is to put something in safekeeping, to, to hide it away for the sake of protection. But what are we treasuring? It's not money, it is his words, his commandments. And ultimately, I think there's, there's a good reason from this passage to believe that Solomon knew he was writing inspired scripture. He compares his words and his teaching directly to the rest of scripture. We'll see that in a minute. Number two, in verse two, he says, protect it, keep watch over wisdom as if it was your own life. Verse two, keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Matthew Henry says, keep them as you would your own life, as those that cannot live without them. Oh man, that's convicting. How do you think about the truth of scripture? How do you think about the word? Is it something that you cannot live without? 
Keep it as your own life. Keep it and live. He says, keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Now, as I grew up, I feel like I've heard this expression, apple of your eye, used in a lot of different ways. But ultimately, what it really means is it, it literally translates the little man in your eye. The idea is, if you were really close face-to-face -face with someone, you would see yourself reflected in their eyes if they were looking directly at you, right? Right in the center, right in their pupil. And so the idea is, if you are keeping it as the apple of your eye, you are focused intently on that. Deuteronomy 32.10, it says that God guards him as the pupil of his eye. Or in Psalm 17, the psalmist prays, Psalm 17.8, keep me as the apple of your eye. And then it, he compares it this way, hide me in the shadow of your wings. So when we are keeping the teaching as the apple of our eye, that is that we are treasuring and protecting it, watching over it to make sure no one takes it away. Verse 3, Solomon says that we should keep and protect wisdom as valuable information. Look at, at verse 3. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Bind them, wrap them around, tie them down on your fingers, and write them on the tablet, uh, on the wood of your heart. Solomon is, is essentially quoting from Deuteronomy 11.18. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. We've talked about that a few times in Proverbs already, but the idea is how accessible, how close are you keeping the word of God, the truth? Are you protecting it as you would the most valuable information? And I, I love how it says, put it into your heart. Write it on the tablet of your heart. Why? Because no one can take that away from you. If you have it out here, even on your hand, someone might wrest it away from you. But put it in your heart, and no one can steal it. One of the commentaries says, The best advice is useless against temptation unless it is thoroughly taken to heart and translated into habits. That's the idea. In verse 4, Solomon says that we are protect wisdom as if it was our best friend. Verse 4, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend. When we get to Song of Solomon, we're going to see that that, that word sister is, is really just an idea of being a loved one. It can mean a blood sister, but it can be just a close uh, relationship. Uh, Solomon often calls his bride his sister in Song of Solomon. But he says, call wisdom your sister. Call understanding your, your intimate friend. That intimate friend is the idea of a, a close relative, a kinsman. It's actually the word that used for Boaz in Ruth. Remember where uh, Ruth and, and Naomi come back and it says Naomi had a kinsman, a close relative. Well, actually, it's kind of ironic in that sense in Ruth because Boaz was not a very close relative, but it was the closest relative she had, right? And that's why, or the second closest, as the story goes. But the idea is a kinsman, an intimate friend. We, we would say something along the lines of a best friend. Call understanding your best friend and call wisdom your sister. The question is, <laughs> how many relationships and priorities do you have in your life before you get to the word of God? That's the question. Is the word of God the closest companion you have or not? How do we think about it? Do we treat it as a great treasure? Do, do we protect it like we would our own life? 
Do we watch over wisdom as valuable information, as, as the closest relationship that we have or not? Solomon says we need this. We need to protect and watch over wisdom because, verse 5, wisdom will protect you. Wisdom will protect you. In verse 5, he says, so that, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. And now he switches it around. He uses the same word, to keep, to watch over, to guard. He says, if you will guard wisdom in your life, wisdom will guard you from sin and temptation. It will keep you from an adulteress, from that strange woman, from the foreigner who flatters, who, who uses smooth speech. Proverbs 2.16, wisdom will deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words. Proverbs 6, 23 and 24, we saw last time. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Eric Lane again says, Solomon's remedy for promiscuity is to know and to obey the word of God. It's really that simple. If you are struggling with a pattern of sin, especially a pattern of sin related to sexual things, just know that you need the scripture. That is what you need. Now you say, I read uh, chapters and chapters every day. Okay, maybe, but you are not actually listening to the word of God. You need to be meditating day and night on the word of God because wisdom is what will protect you from this kind of sin. The word of God will protect us from sexual sin. Wisdom will protect us if we protect wisdom in our own hearts. Now, we come to the second discipline that will help us to defend against sexual sin and temptation. And this is the, the bulk of the chapter. And the idea is that we need to understand the process of temptation. You remember the illustration of the soldier going into battle? If he doesn't know who he's fighting, if he doesn't know where they might be, if he doesn't know any of their tactics and how they might attack him, he will have no hope of winning the battle. But for us, not only do we need to don our body armor, put wisdom on us, but also we need to understand the enemy, understand the process of temptation. Sun Tzu, in his classic work, The Art of War, said, if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. I think he's right, mostly because the Bible said it first. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. We'll read most of the chapter here. For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive, discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing through the street near her corner, he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face she says, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly. And I found you. 
I've spread my couch with coverings with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. And suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. We need to understand the process of temptation now, there is some discussion about this section on whether this is a, a literal account, an eyewitness account, whether Solomon is telling a true story. I think that's possible, but I would actually argue as, as we go through it, we'll see that that's not very likely. I do think that this is a very true story that has happened and that could happen, but I think Solomon is telling this one as a story for the sake of his son's. Notice verse 6, he, he really does get into the drama though, he, he expresses it like he was there. For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice. Now a lattice, uh, you guys probably know this, but uh, you know, they didn't used to have glass windows, they didn't used to have uh, you know, Venetian blinds you could pull down, and so lattices were, were wood paneling that would go over the window to keep large things, people and animals from coming in the window, but you could still see out through them. It was actually hard to see into the house, but you could see out. And so supposedly he's standing here at the window looking out through the paneling and he sees something. He sees a young man being tempted. Verses 6 to 9. Now the first thing that he notices about this man, and this is uh, what we might call dramatic foreshadowing, is he notices that this young man thinks very, very poorly. <laughs> he says, I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. Among the naive, among the simple-minded, so the idea is here, he sees a, young, a, a group of young men walk, walking down the street, and then out of them, who all of them are young men who are foolish and naive, out of them there is one who, who well, we might say is, is the best of the pack. He is very, very naive. He is very simple-minded. It says he's lacking sense. Literally, it says he is in want of heart. Now, in English, when we say you're lacking heart, we mean you're lacking effort, right, and, and, and gumption, right? But the idea of lacking heart here, remember in the Bible, heart is, is the heart and mind together, right? This is his thinking. Uh, he is in want of a brain, we might say, okay? One of the commentaries says, this young man is a feather-brained young man. Proverbs 1.4, clearly this man has not studied wisdom because Proverbs 1.4 says wisdom gives prudence to the naive and to the youth knowledge. Proverbs 1.22, how long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded and scoffers delight themselves in scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Back in chapter 6, we saw where it said, one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. This young man is foolish and empty-headed, and thinking completely wrongly. Also, we notice that he finds himself in the wrong place. It says he's passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house. It says he takes the way, now that's a very intentional word, a very intentional description that he is walking knowing where he's going. 
Now the question is, does he know he's going toward her house, or does he know he's just going past her house? Well, we can't tell, but I think here in, in context we can see this man is empty-headed and he wants all the wrong things. I think that there's a very good chance he might be walking this way so that he could say he was taking a shortcut somewhere else and he was just hoping that he passed by her house on the way. He finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Look at verse 9. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. Now the first two words, twilight and evening, have to do with the time around sunset. In the late afternoon into when we would call the nighttime, when there is not much light. In the middle of the night and in the darkness talks about that deep, thick darkness of the middle of the night. The idea is, in, in a culture of that time, there wasn't artificial lighting. Once the sun went down, it very quickly became dark, especially when you were in alleyways and streets between buildings. This is the time where he waited to separate from his friends and take a detour. He waited until it was in the evening when it was dark in the middle of the night. Why? Because Job 24.15 says the eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight saying no one will see me. Why do I think he knew where he was going? Because he waited until it was dark. We cannot be this way. Ephesians 5.11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. We are not people of darkness, we are people of light because Christ has saved us. Lane again says, this scenario has all the ingredients of a major moral disaster. The wrong person in the wrong company in the wrong place at the wrong time. Matthew Henry says, when we have nothing to do, the devil will quickly find us something to do. This young man is idle. He is not thinking biblically. And so he intentionally goes to a place at a terrible time and he finds himself wrapped up in sin. So the question for you and me is, as we battle temptation and sin, and especially temptation and sin related to sexual things, you remember back in chapter 5, we cannot go near her house. We can't do it. We, we need to, when we are tempted, we need to make note of those circumstances, what happened, what was going on when we were tempted. We need to make note of that. And then, when we are not in the heat of the moment of temptation, we need to make very clear and direct plans to not be in those circumstances again. You understand? We cannot put ourselves in a position to sin. We need to put ourselves in a position to succeed. Make it, uh, uh, someone told me one time, make it easy for yourself to obey and make it very hard to sin. That's the idea. Romans 13, make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. If every time you are home alone after 9 o'clock and, and the internet is on, you sin, then have someone come and turn your internet off at 9 o'clock every night. If you are, are struggle to keep your thoughts correct when you talk to a certain person at work that you do not really have to talk to, don't talk to them. Or if you do, you might need to find a different job. The reality is you need to fight to keep yourself from these horrible circumstances to where you will be tempted to sin. Robert Alden wrote, if you want to avoid the devil, stay away from his neighborhood. If you suspect you might be vulnerable to a particular sin, take steps to avoid it. 
That young man is the one who is tempted. Next, we see the temptress in the next few verses. First thing that's noted about her in verse 10 is her wardrobe. Behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot. A woman comes out to meet him. She, she happens to encounter him, if you will, as he walks this way. And the one thing that she is described as physically is that she is dressed as a harlot. Now, I appreciate uh, for a number of reasons that Solomon did not describe what that means. You know why? He doesn't need to. When I say dressed as a harlot, you have something come into your mind, probably that you need to put out of your mind as we continue to study. But the reality is that a woman dressed for that role has a very distinct look about her. That is not what Christian women are to be. 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, Paul writes, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Let me just flip this around and say to all of us, especially the women, but men included, that we cannot be the temptress. <laughs> we cannot be the one who causes others to walk down a path of sin. Whether it's the way we dress, the way we talk, the way we act, we cannot be the one who tempts our brother to sin. Therefore, we need to be careful in all of these things. We need to be careful, again, how we dress, that it is modest and discreet, not drawing undue attention to ourselves. We need to be careful how we act and talk. We'll see that here in a minute with this temptress. But we cannot be her, and we must avoid people like this. She comes to encounter him dressed as a harlot. Next, we see her motive. Look at the end of verse 10. Dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. This, uh, this word, cunning of heart, it actually has the idea of, remember those verses back in Proverbs 5 where it talked about observing discretion, reserving knowledge, the idea of protecting and, and watching over. It's the same idea. Uh, she has a protected heart. The idea is, I think some of the translations say, she has a hidden agenda. That's the idea. The thing that she is promoting on the outside and what is actually going on in her heart do not match. She is not really this friendly and this kind. She is cunning of heart. She has a secret intent. Her wardrobe, her motive, verse 11, her persona. It says she is boisterous and rebellious. Boisterous literally just means loud. <laughs> she comes in and you can hear her coming. She, uh, the idea is a roaring and uproar. It's actually the same word. Remember in Psalm 46 where it says the oceans roar and foam. That's the idea. No one is, is confused about where this woman is. She's loud. She walks into a room and everyone knows that she is there. It says she's, she's rebellious. She's stubborn. She's wayward. She, uh, a lady today might say, I'm not one to be tamed by other people. She is boisterous and rebellious. She's loud and wayward. Number four, her location. Her feet do not remain at home. She's now in the streets, now in the squares, and she lurks by every corner. Uh, her feet do not reside, do not dwell at home. <laughs> the idea is that even calling it her home is a bit of a stretch. She doesn't stay there. In today's language, she, would be the, she doesn't like to be at home. She likes to go out. She likes to be with others. She likes to party. She's the social butterfly, if you will. 
What's very scary is in verse 12, it says she's now in the streets, now in the squares. You remember back in chapter 5 when we talked about God's good design for sex and marriage where it says, don't let your streams be scattered into the streets and into the public square. Uh, Don't let the marriage relationship be something that's a community resource, right? Well, that's exactly what she is. It says this woman, she is in the streets and she's in the squares. It's the exact same language put to her. She is the one who is out in the community for anyone to take part of. But even more nefarious, it says she lurks by every corner. The idea is she lies in wait. She's ready to ambush someone as they come by. Proverbs 23, 27, and 28. For a harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. There are people in your life and out in the world who are waiting to get you into trouble. You cannot put yourself in that situation. 1 Timothy 5, Paul writes about the young widows who who they have learned to be idle and they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. That's where this kind of behavior starts. It's not that you start by being this aggressive harlot. It's that you start by being idle and pursuing things that are foolish and not good for you. And it progresses that way. Matthew Henry (laughs) says, She is here, she is there, she is everywhere, but where she should be. Women in a biblical family are called to care for the home, and this woman does not reside at home. Number five, we see her behavior, verse 13. She comes, she encounters this young man, and it says she seizes him and kisses him. She seizes him. She grabs hold of him and draws him close. Proverbs 4.13 says we are to do that. We are to seize and take hold, not of the adulteress, but take hold of instruction. Take hold of wisdom. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Sin wants to grab you and bring you close. And the only way you can defend against that is you have already grabbed wisdom and brought her close. But here she grabs the young man, she brings him in and kisses him, and with a brazen face, a a defiant look, a bold face, she says. Proverbs 21, 29 says, The one who displays a bold face is the wicked man. That is what she is. She is wicked. This is very similar language to Genesis chapter 39, verse 12. Anybody remember that story? The young man, Joseph, and it says Potiphar's wife, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. Just so you know, and I think you do, but to remind you, it's my job, sin doesn't take no for an answer, okay? We are in a battle against temptation and sin. You don't say, no thanks, Satan, I I don't want to sin today, and he will leave you alone. That's not how it works. Sin is aggressive. It's boisterous. It comes, and it grabs you by the shirt collar, and it brings you in. And if you are not ready with your defense, she will take you. So, in this drama here, the process of temptation we're seeing, we see the tempted, we saw the temptress, and now let's see what she actually says. What is the temptation that she brings? 
This is fascinating to me. Look at verse 14. She grabs him, she brings him close, she kisses him, and with a bold, defiant face, she says, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today, I have paid my vows. I was due to offer peace offerings. Today, I have paid my vows. Now, peace offerings are described in Leviticus chapter 3 and Leviticus chapter 7. There's two kind of peace offerings. One is a free will offering. That is, you come and offer something at the temple, not because you're required to, but because you want to honor the Lord and give something. The other way is called a votive offering or a vow offering. That's what she offered. And that is, she's bringing an offering as a celebration that she has kept a vow that she made to the Lord. Now, because of that, when you took a a votive offering at the end of your vow to uh, the temple, to the tabernacle there. Leviticus 7 verse 15 says, As for the flesh of the sacrifice of the Thanksgiving peace offering, it shall be eaten on the day of that offering. The idea was most sacrifices, when you took them to the temple or the tabernacle, they would be burned or they would be given to the priest or so on. Peace offerings were different. Peace offerings, when you brought the offering to the Lord, most of it went home with you. And so... Leviticus 7.15 says that the flesh of a sacrifice, in this case, had to be eaten on the day of that offering. You couldn't wait until the next day. And so, what she is saying here, one of the things she's saying is that she has food ready for dinner. She has this meal that has to be eaten that day, and she needs someone to celebrate with. Now, one of the things that she's saying there is that she has food to offer. That's the, the, the request she's giving to this young man. But notice that that's not what she says. (laughs) She doesn't say, come to my house because I have a banquet prepared. She doesn't say, I have food that needs to be eaten. What does she say? She says, I went and made a peace offering. I have fulfilled my vows. What is she focusing on? She's not focusing on the food. She's focusing on her and all the good things that she has done. The temptation, the first lie that she tells this man is that she's really a good person. Isn't that horribly scary? That this kind of person would come and she would say, it's amazing I saw you. I'm on my way home from church to eat Sunday dinner. Would you come with me? Oh my goodness. Deuteronomy 23, 18, God says very clearly, you shall not bring the hire of a harlot into the house of the Lord your God for any votive offering. Specifically, This was against the law. Matthew Henry says, It is sad that a show of piety should become the shelter of iniquity, which really doubles the shame of it and makes it more exceedingly sinful. This woman is sinful. She is cunning of heart. And yet she comes and she says, It's amazing that I saw you on the day that I am celebrating how good the Lord is to me. Be very, very careful that just because someone seems like a good person, they say all the right things, they go to your church, that if they tempt you to sin, they are wrong. Do you understand? She says she's really a good person, but it's a lie. Verse 15, another lie. She says she really loves you. Verse 15, therefore I've come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I've found you. I I sought your presence earnestly. I, I was 
searching for you and your presence, literally your face. Uh, I kept looking and looking for you. Uh, I knew that I had this dinner to eat and I wanted someone to share it with and the only person I could think about was you. So I came out looking for you. And praise the Lord, I come out looking for you and I found you. What a happy providence that this happened. It's a lie. (laughs) The expositor's commentary says, only a fool would believe that this woman was interested in him. Isn't that one of the temptations, though, when it comes to sexual sin? It's not just something out there. No, she, she really likes you. She's really interested in you. He, he, he really is attracted to you. His wife doesn't love him anymore, but, but you listen. It's dangerous. This person does not love you. And, and let me just be very clear I mean, if someone says that they love you, especially you who are single, but to all of us, and they tempt you to sin, they do not love you, they do not love Jesus, at least not in that moment. You run away from it, no matter what the circumstances are, it's not worth it. She says she's a good person, she says she really likes me, but it's a lie. Number three, the third step of the temptation, she is intensely pleasing. Verse 16, I've spread my couch with coverings with colored linens of Egypt. Literally, I've made up my bed. It's fascinating to me that we still use Egyptian cotton for bed sheets, but here we are. She's made up her bed with the finest linens of Egypt. She is apparently very, very wealthy. Not only does she have an actual bed, which was uncommon at the time, but she has special coverings and cloths, and they are not things that she has made. Rather, they have been imported from Egypt. In Proverbs 31, the wise woman, the good wife, says that she is to make coverings. But you know why? It says she is to make coverings for herself, and then it goes on to talk about how she clothes her family and children and servants. This woman has coverings that she bought, and they are not for herself. They are for her in these illicit affairs. She says, I, I've sprinkled, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. All of these were, were good-smelling spices and gums that would, would make the, the experience that much more intoxicating. Now, in this whole section, verses 6 down to 23, there is only one command, one imperative, one thing that someone says you must do. And you know what it is? It's in verse 18 when she says, come. She looks at you, and her temptation is that blunt. You need to come with me. Sin eventually will lose its subtlety. Do you understand? It says all these nice things. It says how it's a good person. It says how she really loves you. But when it comes down to it, she says, come, sin with me. And that's when you know 100% this is wrong. Come, let us drink our fill. Again, the same wording used in chapter 5 of a good marriage relationship when you are to saturate yourself with the affection of your spouse, 519, She says, come, let's drink our fill. Let's saturate ourselves with love. 
It's the same word used in Song of Solomon for beloved, but it very clearly implies illicit sex here in this context. Matthew Henry says it this way, Oh, of love, does she say? She means of lust, brutish lust, but it is a pity that the name of love should be so abused. True love is from heaven. This is from hell. How can those who pretend to solace themselves and love one another who are really ruining themselves and one another? Someone who wants you to sin with them does not love you. Number four, her last lie that she says is you won't be found out. Come, sin with me all night long, and it won't matter. No one will know. We won't be found out. Why? Because my husband's not here. He's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. It's actually interesting. She doesn't say, she doesn't use the word husband. She says, the man. The man of my house, he's not here. He has gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money, a large bag of silver in his hand. It's the same idea of Genesis 42, 35. Remember when Joseph's brothers come on a long journey from Canaan to Egypt to buy grain. Obviously, you understand that at the time, they were not buying a day's worth of grain. It wasn't a few coins. They had large amounts of money with them to buy large amounts of grain. And it says they had their bundles of money. That's the same idea here. This man has a bag full of cash. Why? Because he's going away for a long, long time. A long time. And it says he won't come home until the full moon. Now, what's interesting is uh, we're, we're, jump, we're guessing a little bit here, but I think it's interesting. Back in verse 9, you remember that it said this man was doing these things in the utter darkness. It almost implies that there is no moonlight either. If that's true, and then it says he won't come home until the full moon, then we're talking at least half a month, two weeks, right? Before this man will come home. She says, there is no possibility at all that whatever we're doing will be found out. There's no chance. And just so you know, when sin tells you that, it is a lie. God knows all of it. And I thought this was helpful from the expositor's commentary. It shows a shift in the way that she's talking to this young man. Because, the expositor's commentary, she doesn't try to convince the youth that their encounter is right only that they can get away with it. You see that? There was a time where she was talking, and oh, this is a good thing. You're celebrating with me. It's just going to be fun. And then it got to a point where it says, we're going to sin, but we can get away with it. And it's a lie. Sin tells lies. (laughs) Don't believe them. Don't believe when sin tells you that that person's really a good person, that they're really out for your best, that the, it, the pleasure is going to be worth it, that you won't be caught. Don't believe it when sin says that. The reality is, and let me get a little bit personal and specific, you cannot be in intimate relationship with someone who is not your spouse in any way, any shape or form. It doesn't matter if the guy who works across the hall and his wife doesn't love him and he just needs someone to talk to, it doesn't matter. You are not the one to talk to. You send him home to talk to his wife or to talk to his pastor. Those are his options. If, if the girl that you knew in college and, and her boyfriend is a jerk and she needs help, well, your wife can help her if she wants or you can send her to someone else. That is not your job. 
You cannot be in these close, intimate relationships with someone who is not your spouse. Sin always takes you further than you want it to go. It always keeps you longer than you want to stay. It always does. So we come to verses 21 to 23, and and really we see a summary of this whole interaction. Verse 21 shows the temptation With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. She has abundant persuasions. This wasn't the only time they had talked. She's done this over and over and over again, and this is scary. Her many persuasions, that's the same word for teaching and instructions. She's trying to get you to think something that you didn't think before. She's trying to explain it to you. No, no, you don't really understand and she entices him. She, she guides him in with her smooth, flattering lips. She seduces him. Deuteronomy 13, verse 5, says that a false prophet is the one who seduces you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. In First Kings, sorry, 2 Kings 17, 21, when Jeroboam takes over the northern kingdom of Israel. It says that he drove Israel away from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. It's the same word here. She is taking this man, and with her many persuasions and her smooth lips, she is driving him away from God. That is what she's doing. So the question is, how will this young man respond Because the reality is, you and I might get into a situation like this, and as unwise and foolish as it might be, you could technically get to this point and not sin. But here's the question. When you're here, what are you going to do? Are you going to Genesis 39 and run away and leave your coat behind? Or, verse 22... Submission. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. Now, the word suddenly, uh, you know, we might think of that as kind of with surprise, startling someone. Suddenly it came about. It's not the idea. The idea is that it happened without warning. (laughs) The idea is that there's not a long period of time here. It was a quick succession of events. This man, when when he's presented with this woman's proposal, did not wait. He didn't seek counsel. He didn't go and listen to a sermon. He didn't read a couple good books on the matter. Rather, he made a split-second decision, and it was the wrong one. This is kind of an aside, but can I just encourage you? As far as decision-making goes in your life, there are very, very few times in your life where slowing down and waiting are going to cause you to make a bad decision, okay? It just won't. But when you make a decision without warning, suddenly he, he follows her. He goes after her. And then it says, this is what he's like. He's like an ox literally going to the butcher. He follows her. He holds her hand and she leads him away as you would lead an animal you're about to slaughter. Or it says he's like one who is in fetters to the discipline of a fool. The idea of a slave being in in ankle chains, walking along to the discipline, the the chastisement of a fool because they are are imprisoned, they are arrested for this. Now I think that's very interesting because I think those two pictures show 
different reasons why we might give in to sin. Number one, we might give in to sin because we are simply stupid. An ox goes to the slaughter. An ox going to the butcher doesn't know it's going to the butcher. It thinks you might be leading it out to pasture, and then it dies. There are times when you give in to sin because you are simply not thinking. You are stupid. Don't do that. But the second one, as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, the idea of a slave with, with ankle chains on, that person is not stupid. That person knows they are a slave. They know they've been imprisoned. Why do they give in? Why do they go where their captor leads them? Because they think they don't have a choice. How many times are you tempted to sin? And you get, you get 90% of the way into this temptation. You're at this point where it's going to lead you away and you think you don't have a choice. And so you just keep on. You just keep walking down that thought process that you shouldn't be in. You keep walking towards that person that you shouldn't be talking to or whatever it is. But know that you have a choice here. It is your choice whether you will disobey and you will submit yourself and, and just give up to sin or whether you will fight and run and obey. What decision are you going to make? Now, one, one comment for you. If you have a different translation, you, your verse 22 might talk about a deer or a stag jumping into a trap or a snare. That's a, uh, there's a translational difference there. I, I prefer this one, the one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, but uh, one translation tried to keep that hunting metaphor between the ox going to the slaughter, a deer, and then the next verse talks about a bird and a snare. But that's why that's there. Regardless, the point is, are you going to give in to the trap? Are you going to give in to sin? Or are you going to fight and run away? Verse 23, the third section of this summary. There's the temptation, there's the submission, and then there's the destruction. Verse 23, until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. He doesn't know that it will cost him his life. Until an arrow pierces his liver. Now, we don't, we don't say that phrase a whole lot, hopefully. But the idea here is it's a kill shot. This is one shot through the side of an animal, and it's dead. This is not something that, that has any question. Oh, well, he, he got hurt, but he'll make it out alive. No. An arrow went through his liver. He will bleed out and die. And as a bird hastens to the snare, why does an animal run towards a trap? Is it because they know they're going to be trapped? No. An animal runs into a trap. Why? Because of the bait. And so when he sees this woman and she offers this to him, he takes her hand and she leads him away and he is excited about it because he's only looking at the bait. And he doesn't look at the trap that she is setting for him. And he doesn't know that it will cost him his life. What's interesting about that word life is it is also the word sometimes translated soul. The idea here is that this man is throwing away his life. And potentially this is a sign that he is throwing away his eternity. Matthew Henry says it is his life, his precious life, that is thus irrevo irrevocably thrown away. 
He is perfectly lost to all good. His conscience is debauched. A door is open to all kinds of other vices, and this will certainly end in his endless damnation. The reality is, if you are caught in a long-standing pattern of sin, whether it's of sexual sin or another kind, you need to be very careful that you recognize this might be a sign that you are not in Christ at all. And your physical death leads immediately to your eternal death. Sin will cost you your life. So the question is, is it worth it to you? He doesn't know that it will cost him his life. Quickly, we need to finish with a third discipline. We need to embrace the protection of wisdom. We need to put on our armor. We need to understand our enemy, understand the process of temptation. But then number three, and this is, this is the clearest of all, we need to avoid the path of death. Look at verses 24 to 27. Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Solomon is writing, and he finishes that, that dramatized version of the story. Don't be like this young man. And he, he kind of reverts to the narrator, and he, he listen to me. <laughs> the moral of the story He says, listen to me, pay attention, give attention to the words of my mouth. And you say, I feel like we've heard these words before. We have. (laughs) Proverbs 1.8, hear my son your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Proverbs 2.2, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. Proverbs 3.1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Proverbs 4.1, hear, O sons, the instruction of a father and give attention that you may gain understanding. Proverbs 4.20 and 21, my son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, do not let them depart from your sight, keep them in the midst of your heart. Proverbs 5.1, my son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding. 5.7, now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Proverbs 6, 20 to 23. My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. The reason why we fall into sin is because we do not listen. That's why. Solomon tells his sons, you have to listen to me. Listen to the words that I am saying to you. Look at verse 25. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Now, in one sense, he's talking about ways of life and paths. Don't let your behavior move into her realm. But notice what he says. Do not let what? your heart turn aside. Recognize that patterns of sin always start in your heart. 
The reason why people throw away their marriage and family for illicit affairs is not because that's the first time they ever thought about it. It's because their affections have been drawn that way for a long time and they finally got the guts up to act on it. And it'll cost them their life. Guard your heart now and do not let your heart turn aside, turn away to the wrong path, to the way where she is. Proverbs 3.17 says that wisdom, her ways are pleasant ways and her paths are peace. Proverbs 12.28, in the way of righteousness is life and in its pathway there is no death. Proverbs 12.26 says the righteous is a guide to his neighbor but the way of the wicked leads them astray. There is a path that your life can take that is good and right and life, but it's not her way. Matthew Henry says, Do not just keep your feet from her ways, but let not so much as your heart incline to them. Never harbor a disposition this way, nor think otherwise than with abhorrence of such wicked practices as these. Let reason and your conscience and the fear of God in your heart check the inclinations of your sensual appetite. Why do we have to avoid her so much? Because she is the path of death. Many, numerous, great numbers are her slain. These last couple verses changed to that military metaphor. And now she is, she is not a, a boisterous, fun-loving, social butterfly of a woman. Actually, now she is a bloodthirsty warrior cutting down people on the battlefield. Many are the victims. Many are the ones she has cast down. Literally, she has felled. And look at this. It says, numerous are her slain. Actually, uh, the, I would prefer the translation instead of numerous is mighty. Mighty are her slain. Psalm 135.10 says, God slew mighty kings. That's the idea. The idea here is to remind you, if you thought you were the one who could withstand temptation, if you thought you were the unique one, recognize that one's mightier than you she has cast down. Mightier men and women than you have fallen into this kind of sin. I can't help but think that Solomon is thinking of his father, perhaps himself. Mightier men than us have fallen before this woman. Her house is the way to Sheol, the place of the dead, and ascending to the chambers of death. Literally, she has the way to death's bedroom. Matthew Poole says, Without repentance, hell will certainly be their portion, and their first death will be followed by the second. Running into sin is the path of death. There's no other option. I want to wrap up with a couple of applications and, and want, to, want to speak carefully here. Now, we're going to talk about sexual sin again in Proverbs. We'll talk about it in Ecclesiastes. We'll talk about it in Song of Solomon. We're going to get there. But this is going to be the last main passage where this is the primary thrust. And so I, I read a book once, uh, actually listened to a sermon that was turned into a book, but Kevin DeYoung, who's a, a Reformed pastor in North Carolina, he wrote a book on the Ten Commandments, and when he preached that sermon on the Seventh Commandment, Do Not Commit Adultery, he finished with this application. 
And so I, I just wanted to steal that for this morning and, and give it to you all. So application, speaking to three groups of people. First, to the tempted. The tempted are, are those of us who, who do want to do the right thing, but we see this shiny thing, this, this boisterous woman. We are tempted there. We see that. Here's the reminder, 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Recognize that if you are in Christ, if you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, there is always, the Bible says, always a way of escape. No matter how far down the road you think you are, there is always a way of escape from temptation. Next to the wayward. Maybe you're here and, and the reality is your life is consumed with these things. And none of the rest of us know it. You're good at hiding. You've practiced that part. You still sound like a good Christian. You sound like you should be here among us. But you know in your heart that you are not. Recognize Galatians 6 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If you are trapped in sin with no hope of getting out, there is hope, but it's through you abandoning your sin and running to Christ. And if you don't, God is not amused. Number three, to the brokenhearted. You might be here, and you might have struggled with these things for a long time. And you might feel a lot of guilt and shame over your past, over the things that you've done or seen or experienced. Just know that John is clear that if we say we have no sin, we're simply deceiving ourselves. We're lying to ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is And righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about all the unrighteous that will not inherit the kingdom of God, the fornicators and idolaters and adulterers, the homosexuals and covetous and drunkards and so on. And then verse 7 says, But such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. If you're ashamed of your past, you don't have to be. Look to your future, to Christ who has saved you. In the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is walking along with his friend Faithful. And he says, well, Faithful, tell me what you have met along the path as you came. For I know you've met with some things, or else it may be writ for a wonder. Faith, Faithful. It says, I escaped the slough that I perceive you fell into, and I got up to the gate without that danger. Only I met with one, her name was Wanton, that had like to have done me mischief. Christian says, oh, it was well you escaped her net. Joseph was hard put to it by her, and, she, and he escaped her as you did, but it had like to have cost him his life, Genesis 39 says. What did she do to you? Faithful responds, you cannot think what a flattering tongue she had. She laid me hard to turn aside with her, promising me all manner of content. 
Christian says, no, she did not promise you the content of a good conscience. Oh, you know what I mean, says faithful, all carnal and fleshly content. Well, thank God that you escaped her, said Christian. The abhorred of the Lord shall fall into her pit. Faithful says, no, I, I know not whether I did wholly escape her or not. Christian says, why? I, I think you did not consent to her desires. Faithful says, no, not to defile myself. For I remembered an old writing that I'd seen, her steps go down to hell. Proverbs 5. So, I shut mine eyes because I would not be bewitched with her looks. I pray for you and for me that we will work hard at putting on these disciplines to defend ourselves against sexual sin and temptation. So, let's pray. God, I pray like the character faithful, you would help us to shut our eyes and run away from temptation and sin. God, your word is clear. There is no good ending for sin and those who partake in it. There is only good ending for those who follow the path of life and righteousness and wisdom. God, we need your wisdom to live our lives protected from sin and temptation, and I pray that you would bless everyone in this room with that, a desire to be in your word to recognize what your word says about temptation and how it attacks us. And I pray that you would give us the discipline in our lives to simply walk away from the path of death, to take very clear and actionable steps to run away from sin and run to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the time. Pray all this in your name.